This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 150. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. And in fact, today I am kind of flying solo uh, because uh, Jacob and I were not able to, to really get together to put together this episode. And uh, But that's okay because I've got a great guest for today's uh, episode. And actually, I should explain, it's going to be two a two-part episode. So there's going to be two separate uh, episodes, uh, part of the same interview, uh, and I'm releasing them back-to-back, but uh, it's really great stuff. Our guest for today, his name is Mark Passamanic. Chances are, many of you may not know who Mark Passamanic is, especially if you're more of a defensive shooter, uh, because he, he he's really pretty well known amongst uh, competition shooters. Uh, he's well known three gun and uh, in uh, USPSA. Uh, he's been involved with that for a long time. He has a company called Carbon Arms. They make a lot of great competition gear, uh, especially if, it, if it's shotgun related, uh, you know, and a few other things too. He's got a great muzzle brake, uh, shotgun uh, uh, shell holders, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So really great guy. I mean, he, just does, he doesn't just make equipment for competition shooters. He really gets it. He really knows it. And as you're going to find out, Mark... Uh, he is really a multi-layered uh, uh, onion. A lot of layers to this guy. A vast array of knowledge and experience that we're going to dive into. I think you're really going to enjoy. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, now, I recorded this episode a couple of days ago, or this ep- this interview with him a few days ago. And actually, right now, I'm sitting here in Milwaukee attending the NRA Carry Guard Expo, which is a great show. Uh, we're going to have a special episode on Monday, uh, Jacob and I, uh, basically going over and covering what we saw at the show. Uh, first time the NRA's put on this show. Uh, really a cool show, cool concept, uh, and there's there were some good things that came out of it, so uh, we look forward to talking about that, sharing with some of the things we found, and, and a couple of new products, uh, companies, and, and uh, you know, so... Anyway, uh, without further ado, uh, I do need to mention that today's episode is brought to you by Andrew Branca's The Law of Self-Defense. Uh, you've heard it a couple times now. If, you, if you're an active uh, follower or listener of the podcast, and you probably heard the interview with Andrew a couple episodes ago, super bright guy. Uh, especially, I mean, he is, the, he is the man where it comes to understanding the law of self-defense. Now, you, you heard it a little bit in the episode. There, there's not really... A law school that you can go to to become a specialist in self-defense law. Uh, it's really something you've got to learn with experience uh, and with intense studying of the laws and cases involved with that. And Andrew has done that. In fact, attorneys, other attorneys, many other attorneys contact him and he consults on their cases and advises them about how to best represent their clients in self-defense related cases. Now, Andrew travels the country teaching seminars, these these courses, full day courses, there's a level one course and a level two course, all about the law of self-defense. If you haven't made it to one of those courses, you really need to look into it. There's Chances are there's, there's one that'll be close to you somewhere in the next few months. I mean, he's all over the place, traveling all the time, and we've got a class coming up with him 
the level one, level two law of self-defense courses in Lakewood, Colorado, November 11th and November 12th. And so if you're anywhere nearby or if you're willing to come in, uh, we'd love to have you. And uh, that'd be a great course for you to attend. So you could check all that out. Plus his book, you can get access to and, and purchase his book, which is a very good resource and a perfect place to start. He's got uh, newly released DVDs. You're going to want to see those. And also, not only the, the courses that I mentioned, uh, but he also has online training and coursework as well. So I'd really encourage you to check it out because, heaven knows, we all need to be better informed and educated about the law of self-defense. Go check it out at concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D. Great. And so today's other sponsors are the Brave Response Holster and Quick Draw. Two great products. Hope you'll check them out. I'll have another sponsor message uh, coming up here in a little bit about them. But let's go ahead and play back this interview that I did together with Mark Passamanic. Looking forward to it. We'll catch you on the other side. So, Mark, um, appreciate you sitting down with the uh, doing the podcast with me today, uh, sitting here in your home, in your in your kitchen or dining room. And uh, Mark Passamanic is our guest on the show today. Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Uh, I mean, I know you in a certain way, but I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot more about you today. Uh, you're obviously well-known in the competitive shooting world, particularly three-gun. Everyone, pretty, pretty much everyone I know seems to know Mark. Uh, USPSA, you, you've done a little of that as well. Uh, but I think there's more to Mark than, than just that even. So tell us a little, a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um so my my educational background, even my work history background, is really diverse. Um, my classic education is in mechanical engineering. I went to Carl School of Mines in the University of Colorado, uh, went all the way through master's coursework, and I'm a licensed professional engineer in three states. Um, the bulk of my professional work since I was basically 28 or 29 has been in the forensic engineering field. Um, I've been an owner of companies. I currently own one of my own companies where I do forensic investigations. So that entails using common engineering design principles to evaluate accidents, whether it be motor vehicle accidents. Uh, I do a lot of natural gas and propane fires and explosions, um, carbon monoxide exposures. A lot of these become fatalities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I, I can probably pick out five or six cases that you've heard of, you know, from a national perspective and say, tell you about it. Like I worked on that case, um, shooting reconstructions, um, firearm failures are, are a part of what I do. Um, but it's usually related to a mechanical failure, a design failure or material failure. There is some human interaction. Um, sometimes when parts fail or there's industrial accidents, there's a human factor, you know, Joe didn't follow the instructions or, you know, this guard was removed. Um, so most of those cases are probably headed to litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've testified in court numerous times. I've been certified as an expert in a variety of systems, you know, firearms, ballistics, um, vehicle accident reconstruction, um, fire suppression systems. I, I probably couldn't even <laughs> list all of them, but the, the thing that's interesting is the principles are all the same. 
and I tell people that it's uh, pretty much common sense. I mean, when you if you really understand the principles of engineering and how engineering practices works, it's, they're pretty simple to figure out. Um, sometimes proving them is difficult um, because yet we have to use different analytical methods to uh, look at materials. So it's really following the scientific method by eliminating all these possible causes, coming down to a couple, and then you go and prove which one is accurate. Uh, I also own Carbon Arms. Uh, Carbon Arms is a company we manufacture various components related for competitive shooters primarily. Um, we were the first people to come out with the uh, the twins and quad shotgun shell loaders. Um, really changed the game of, th- of three gun. Um, but we make some other components. I make a carbon feather handguard. Um, I make a comp um, that's pretty revolutionary. That's all based on computational fluid d- dynamics. Um, so pretty much everything that's on the website is stuff that either James Casanova or myself came up with, designed, implemented, and now we produce. Um, I don't sell a lot of things that are not my product or I didn't have any involvement with the design of them. Uh. Um, uh, I drove, built, constructed race cars in several forms of competition. Um, you know, Dave Manamir, I'll tell people, is like my second father to me. Uh, he hired me when I was pretty young, about 15 years old. And, um, you know, still have a good relationship with him. Um, in fact, when my wife and I got married, he brought his 57 Chevy convertible show car and chauffeured us back and forth to the wedding reception. Oh, fun. So people are like, how'd you get that? Okay, yeah. You got connections. Okay. Um, so he's been a big influence in my life on a positive, um, positive role. And, you know, for hobbies, yeah, I primarily competitively shoot. I love hunting, love fishing, love cars, um, love baseball. Both my boys play competitive baseball. So uh, I have a pretty diverse life. I I work out of the home, and Becky, my wife, um, does the books for both of the companies. Um, And I'm 50 years old, and I'm starting on a new venture with another new company. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, half engineer, half entrepreneur, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's... Oh, and and I totally missed... uh, in that span from like 22 to 26, I actually owned a company and I trained CCW. I taught about 5,000 students in that time frame. Oh, wow. And I'm in Colorado, but I had a couple of those connections where I had chief of police who would issue my students permits. So uh, been very involved in all different phases of the firearms industry. Right. Consulted for Remington at one point and worked on the, worked for them to help put together the Versamax competition model. So, yeah, various different things. Hmm. Wow, yeah. So, uh, man of many talents. Uh, <laughs> it's really quite quite fascinating. So, one thing I wanted to kind of touch on first, uh, and, and I'm sure some folks are wondering. This is the Concealed Carry podcast, and obviously we're very defensive minded. Uh, certainly, we've had some competitive shooters, uh, some pros on the podcast, uh, mainly from a, a like a let's talk fundamentals. You know, let's talk how to grip a handgun and shoot it effectively and shoot it quickly because that holds true whether you're trying to shoot fast for competition or shoot fast because you're trying to save your life. Right, but. Uh, I promise we're, we're saving some, some good content here for later in the show with Mark because he's he's 
told and talked to me quite a bit about a concept as it relates to, uh, we'll, we'll just call it uh, how your brain works or, or mindset maybe a little bit, but uh, it's really fascinating stuff. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But first, with your background in forensic engineering, uh, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about that because I think it's really fascinating. And, and, and we see stuff all the time. It goes viral. We see it on Facebook or, or whatever where somebody posts a picture, look what my what happened to my buddy's hand when his gun blew up. Right. Um, so you've been involved in some of those types of things. Well, maybe what have been some of the more interesting cases that you can talk about that you've been involved with? And, you know, how do some of these things happen? Uh, what are maybe some of the mistakes people make? Whether sure. That's on the manufacturing side, or maybe that's a lot of times probably maybe on the user side, I would suspect, too. Yeah. I mean, one of the most common things that I see from the user side relates to black powder. Um, there's this concept called walk-off. So if you look at bullet powder and firearms manufacturers for black powder, they say that when you load your muzzle loader, that at the end of the day, you unload it. Now, there's varieties of ways you can unload it. I think it's more fun to shoot it, but sometimes mm-hmm. you don't want to do that if you're hunting. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people who live in, um, in the South who muzzle loader hunt, and they get off work. They go and they hit their tree stand for a couple hours, go home. And they may do this for two, three weeks at a time. Yeah. Muzzle loader sits in the gun rack. Vibration can cause that bullet that's been compressed against the powder to walk off, meaning it starts to move down the barrel. As opposed to smokeless powder, black powder is delivers its energy faster. It's a faster powder, spikier right. powder. We'll just call it that way. So if you have a walk-off and you pull the trigger, you basically get a, you made a pipe bomb. And there are telltale signs that tell me, hey, this was a walk-off. Um, I did one here in Colorado that was an antelope hunter. He had been hunting for a couple of weeks. Every time it's like the exact same story. Mm. When a black powder gun goes off from a walk-off condition, it's catastrophic. I mean, they banana peel the barrels, the handguard blows off, injuries ensue. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no, wait. We This is a guy hunting antelope. With black powder. Correct. Wow. I've never never even thought yeah, about trying I mean, that. The, there's black powder seasons. And, <laughs> sure, sure. No, and, that's... But yeah, anyway, <laughs> it, cool. it's it's not uncommon. I mean, I probably get three or four of those a year where it's, hey, I attorney calls me up and say, I got a black powder blew up in my guy's hand and he's, you know, he's got, we can weigh the powder. He's only used, you know, four rounds and he's got four bullets. So I know he did the right thing. Like, well, didn't unload it. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, can you explain for us, you know, what I've heard this, I kind of am somewhat familiar with the idea, uh, the problem that that walk-off creates, that space between that powder uh, and the bullet, but maybe kind of in a more, uh, can we go into a little bit more detail as to why that occurs? So when when the bullet is pressed against the powder, when there's ignition, that bullet moves and there's, there's a formula, PV equals NRT. It's pure engineering formula. It's pressure times velocity equals N is a constant, um, R is a constant, and T is the temperature. So it's a piston, just like in your car engine, that piston moves and the pressure expands. And once once the pressure is going up, it starts to move that slug. It's okay. I mean, that's the way it's designed to. When the bullet's far down, the pressure goes, starts to rise, and the rise becomes too fast that by the time it hits the bullet, the pressure is already up too high. So instead of moving the bullet, 
it literally just explodes the chamber. Yeah. Plus that bullet at that point, it, it it's more of a of a sudden jump it, it as is, opposed to a more gradual push. Correct. Right? When the pressure hits it, it's higher. So it's it's resists to starting its motion. It's inertia that resists starting motion is higher than if it starts with a lower pressure and starts moving it slowly. Mm-hmm. And you, end up, you get basically a detonation. Yeah. Yep. Cool. You know, kind of on a related thing, I think, I mean, this is a question that sometimes comes up and, you know, in my business as a host of the Concealed Carry podcast, we get all kinds of questions, but sometimes one thing we hear about are problems with, uh, with modern, you know, smokeless uh, rounds. So cartridges uh, where some issues, not exactly like that, but for similar reasons because of pressures and, you know, things being a little bit out of spec. For instance, uh, a lot of defensive shooters, they're perhaps loading and unloading their handguns frequently. Sure. Uh, cycling rounds more, you know, more than is typical. And those rounds take a little bit of a beating. And so sometimes we hear about problems caused by a bullet getting set back. In exact case. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. So I did one that was a Texas officer shooting a 357 SIG. Um, 357 SIG as you might imagine from a geometry perspective, is more susceptible to bullet setback than, say, a 9mm would be. Right. Um, so he had chambered, I think it was like 37 or 38 times, he had chambered a particular round. He went in for qual, pulled the trigger, gun blew up. He lost a portion of his lower hand. Mm. What kind um, of gun? It was a 357 SIG. Oh, SIG. so it was a SIG. Mm-hmm. It was a SIG. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing wrong with the gun. I mean, it, this was purely a management of ammo issue. Um, you know, people will dry fire and use live rounds. And every once in a while, I'll see like a post or something. Somebody will freak out. And they're like, my round is shorter. I'm like, well, yeah, you've been hitting the feed ramp. Um, so it, it depends on the gun. It depends on the feed ramp. It depends on the, you know, how you do it. Personally, my carry, o- am- carry ammo, once it hits the chamber doesn't go back in the chamber a second time unless it's going to be shot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I have a carry gun that I'm going to be chambering on a regular basis, I rotate that ammo and I literally have a green MTM box and that ammo that's been chambered goes in that box. Not not the manufacturer's box, the green box. When I go to the range once a quarter and shoot my carry ammo, that's what I shoot. So yep. it's been chambered twice. Not a big deal. It's the 15 and more chambering that really becomes the problem. And it depends on some on cartridge. 9 millimeter, not as bad. 45, a little worse, but you're talking lower pressures. Mm-hmm. 357 SIG, yeah. High pressure. If yeah. you're talking 10 millimeter in a 1911 and you're you know, running a 20, 21 pound spring, significant bullet setback can occur. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so what... Once again, kind of from the physics physics side of it, what about that creates the problem? So what you have done is reduce the volume inside the cartridge. And so when the ignition occurs, almost the opposite of the of the walk-off in the black powder, the pressure's really too high. And so it, it comes to be a combination of when the ignition first starts, the pressure just ramps up too quickly because we now have a smaller area. And like I said, PV equals NRT. When the area is smaller, 
the pressure rises faster. So yep. that's that's how that works. And it's some people are going to have, a, and I'm sure listening to this, are going to go, well, wait a second. You said with black powder, if you make the chamber bigger, it's a problem. And with smokeless, if you make the chamber smaller, it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I can show you on math and with a chalkboard, we could be here for a long time, but it, it really is yeah. because of the different burn characteristics of the powders. Right. And that's why I brought up the, the bullet, you know, being set back in the case issue because similar issue as far as regarding pressures and guns blowing up, uh, but totally different causes, if you will. Yep. And, and totally different uh, components as well. Uh, kind of a fascinating thing that probably particularly our newer listeners of the podcast that are maybe newer to shooting may not even be aware of and, and should be watching out for. I mean, I literally have a, a set of calipers. Uh, I, I do something similar where, you know, rounds, I, I may not quite go as, um, I might chamber more than twice occasionally, uh, but I, I measure my rounds looking at that, that overall length and I know what they're supposed to be. And yeah, when things are looking even just couple of thousands short it's like okay right. you know, i got like a bowl yeah <laughs> that i th- toss sure. all my rounds in and and then go through those every once and, in a while you know i i've you know people do press checks and all the kind of stuff press check is really not gonna cause a setback right um and in competition you know especially when i'm doing tactical drills or i'm shooting competition i want to let that slide go home full velocity yep you're talking a carry gun as long as you know out of battery and what it looks like, you can slow chamber that round, put force on the back of the slide, make sure it's fully chambered. That's okay. Yep. Um, so you can mitigate this problem by several different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of my carry guns, for instance, uh, should I shoot them more? Yeah, probably. But like my Glock 17, I get I shoot it all the time. Mm-hmm. My Glock 19 is actually what I carry more of the time. And so when I go and I practice, I mean, shooting a Glock 17 versus a 19, not that big of a difference. So I practice a lot with the 17. The 19 stays loaded a lot yeah. of the time. And sure. so you're not cycling those rounds, not, you know, doing a lot of uh, wear and tear on them. Tell me a little bit about your experience with Glock. I don't know if you've ever read Robin Taylor's book, The Glock in Competition. Um, it, it's at one point was the exhaustive on Glocks. And chapter four in there is the exploding Glock, factor mm. fiction. And I talk about lead building up in Glock barrels, why it's it was a completely new phenomenon because people had, did not have polygonally rifled barrels prior to the Glock. And shooting the lead, they do lead up, pressures build, and you basically can blow a gun up. Mm. Um, mm. It doesn't happen a lot, yeah. but it does happen. Um, so the Glock had an interesting feature set in that they had a partially unsupported chamber. Um, you know, there were a lot of things about the Glock combined with a polygonally rifled barrel that made it blow up. Anyway, I wrote that whole thing. And so I've, mm. I've worked on numerous cases. Um, you know, Glock's corporate attorney has taken my deposition. Mm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. More on a personal note, because I'm curious, what about polygonal bar- uh, rifling? makes that more susceptible to lead buildup? So a, a lead bullet, um, especially in a, in a polygonally rifled barrel, what happens is instead of having grooves and lands that actually cut, and they, it's called engraving, they mm-hmm. actually engrave the bullet and impart twist to it, it actually mashes the sides of the bullet down. Like a swaging. Technically, it swages the bullet a little bit. Mm-hmm. So 
you, you've got flats that in the corner, the bullet is going to hit that corner and it's going to, some of the lead is going to flow into that corner and then other parts of it's going to be flat. So if you look at a Glock bullet that's been fired, whether it's a jacketed bullet or a lead bullet, those flats are pronounced. Mm-hmm. Now, the faster the bullet goes, the less pronounced they are because now you have what's called skidding. So in engraving the bullet, when it twists, those lands build up and that's kind of loose and it can the pressure will pop it out. Not a big deal. In going down a Glock barrel, if, if it's skidding, meaning the, the bullet's going faster than the twist rate, those little corners where the two flats line up get filled full of lead. Mm. So now the next bullet goes through and it, is trying to push more lead. And also if its velocity is too high, it has the same problem. So I've actually measured barrels that are so leaded up. You look down them, it looks like, I mean, it literally looks like sand is in there. Um, so the combination of the bullet hardness, the temperature of the powder and the velocity affect the leading rate. Right. Because you have gas cutting on the base, and that actually forms a gas vapor. Not that big a deal, but it's the skidding that really causes the problem. With gotcha. The so I never, never understood that at all. I'd heard that many times as far as, yeah, don't shoot lead in a Glock. Um, I, I guess was the it, first person in a public realm to explain the phenomenon and say it's real. Mm. And the amount and number of people who attacked me through their own ignorance, they didn't know what they were talking about. But it was it was phenomenal just to watch how many people were, you know, Glock fanboys or whatever. Hey, if, if you've got a great product and you like your product and it's doing great for you and somebody says, well, here, here's a, a design feature that some people say is bad. And I've never said it was bad. I never said, hey, Glock made a mistake. I said, it has features that you need to be aware of and not shooting lead. When the first Glocks came out, it didn't say don't shoot lead bullets. It wasn't until after they actually started to understand the problem that they said don't shoot lead bullets. It used to just say don't shoot reloads. Now it actually says don't shoot lead. Hmm. Wow. That's, I didn't even know that about you, so that's really cool. Yeah, Learned something new. The other thing I want to talk to you about is your background in forensic, um, what's the right word? Investigation? Um, So forensic engineering, forensic analysis. And so some people, when they hear forensic, they get confused because Mm -hmm. there is a field of science called the forensic sciences. So your CSI are forensic scientists. They do blood splatter and DNA stuff. And that's not, forensic sciences is not really what I do. I do more forensic engineering, forensic analysis, forensic investigations. So from the engineering perspective, I look at an accident and determine from a mechanical perspective, did something fail? Was there a a mechanical failure? And, And that can be a manufacturing defect, a material defect, failure to follow instructions, failure to install correctly, or a combination of human interactions. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, if if uh, you're working at a drill press and you're wearing a long sleeve sweatshirt and the sweatshirt 
hits the side of the drill and sucks your arm in, well, there's interplay between the manufacturer, the instructions, the user, and those kind of things. And so it's it's interesting, especially when you go, and I can repeat this if you want, but <laughs> when you come to firearms, there's no standard. There's no testing standards. I mean, there's a whole thing about the SIG P320, and SIG has talked about how we have um, NTJI standards and ANSI standards that we have met. That's improper information. ANSI standards are voluntary. There is no regulatory agency in the United States that has authority over firearms. Mm. And that was done on purpose because of the whole Second Amendment constitutional rights thing many, I mean, tens of years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, so some of it is human interaction, but there's also this thing called sophisticated user. So a sophisticated user is a person who does not need instructions and warnings because they understand the topic well enough or they understand their risks well enough that the manufacturer does not have to give them instructions and guarding. Yeah. I suspect that in the firearms industry, a lot of the standards, uh, like you said, voluntary, but also a lot of it may be things that are, uh, say, put in an operating manual uh, because of attorneys. Sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, don't drop this gun. It may fire. Right. But, uh, okay, cool. That's that's really fascinating stuff. Maybe, could you tell us maybe one more instance or story of uh, uh, a situation involving a gun that you've investigated? Sure. Uh, you know... It- there's, you know, the AR-15 blowing up, and I'll mention a, a magazine, Recoil Magazine. It's mm. Ian Harrison yep. uh, magazine. Um, there's actually an article from maybe three years ago where I purposely blew up an AR-15. And I put N320 powder in the case, filled it up full, compressed it with a 77 grain, mm. and chambered it. I... I fixed it to boards and I was safe and I used protective devices and I had a string to fire it and stuff. But what's fascinating is having looked at 60 or 70 firearms or AR-15s that have blown up, the worst injury anybody ever gets is a little sting to their finger and maybe if a chuck and receiver fl- flies off. Um, the, the whole, I, I can't say, you know, Stoner designed it to fail safe, but they really fail pretty safe. Because even when you blow them up, I was at 210 KPSI, wow. so 210,000 pounds of pressure. That's over four times overpressure. Um, it really didn't do anything significant except damage the gun. If I was holding the gun based on you know the photographs and the videos and what I did, I probably wouldn't have even been hurt. Hmm. So, and we we see that. I mean, it's about once a week that I see somebody where an AR-15 blows up. Is it a deep seat? Is it pistol powder? It it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, sometimes I get kind of sucked into these uh, things on Facebook where someone say, well, this happened, this happened. I always try to go in and say, well, here's some possibilities, but don't be saying you know what it is when you don't. Because mm-hmm. right. we still have to eliminate all these other causes before we can say, oh, that's what it was. Yeah. So cool. Obviously, people got to be mindful when they're reloading, what powders they're using, how much they're using, 
if their reloading equipment's functioning properly, mm-hmm. things are calibrated, dialed in. So yeah. I think it goes without saying, uh, if you're a reloader, sure. take care. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an interesting factoid on me personally, and it's anecdotal, but I've loaded about a million rounds of ammunition. Wow. I've had three squibs, all factory ammo. <laughs> I shoot maybe 5 to 10% of my ammo is factory ammo. Mm. So if you're careful, yeah, you're not going to have problems. Right. Yeah. Come to think of it, I've had one squib. I've been maybe fortunate. And uh, that was also with factory. I've had a couple of failure to fires that were reloads of mine. Sure. That happens. I figured out why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Problem in my in my handling of the primers, unfortunately. That was a hard lesson to learn. Uh, it's one of those things where, ah, oh, crap. Now I got to take apart. Mm-hmm. Thousand bullets. <laughs> yep. Been there, done that. <laughs> anyway, cool. Um, you, you've consulted with uh, with Remington, you mentioned, uh, with the Versamax. Uh, I have not handled one of those really a whole lot, but they look like they shoot pretty pretty well, pretty nicely. They do. Yeah. Yeah. They're a little heavier than some of the other guns. Um, you know, there's a couple little th- tricks. Um, change out the hammer, change out the extractor. Um you know, there's a couple of guys in some forums that are using in a in a tactical uh, realm. Yep. They have a 14-inch barrel. And uh, the guys that, you know, go ahead and change out the extractor and the hammer for Benelli parts, uh, they run like tops. I mean, 30,000, mm. 40,000 rounds, easy. Mm. Um, softer shooting. They handle buckshot and slugs really pretty well. Mm-hmm. So. Mm. Well, and we talked about Glock, and, and you mentioned that you've been deposed by Glock. Uh, that that's that would be really interesting. I mean, that's you know, everybody knows Glock, especially on this podcast. So, yeah. um, let's turn now to actual shooting. Just just briefly, okay. uh, being that this is a shooting podcast. Granted, I mean, we've had Rob Latham on. We've had. Uh, many other shooters on the podcast that people are familiar with and they would go, yeah, Rob is, you know, he's a master, a master of what he yeah, does he, he for can sure. Shoot, he can shoot pretty good. But I've, you know, <laughs> I've seen you shoot Mark and, and you can shoot pretty good too. Uh, what are some of the big things that for you as a shooter uh, are a focus as far as, you know, those, those skills that you feel like you really must master, they take, they take time to figure out that for you, you know, it's taken some time for you to figure out, but you've, you, you're starting to figure those out or you have figured them out. Maybe you could share a couple of uh, nuggets of wisdom. Sure. Um, a, a couple things real generally is shooting is really, really easy. If the sights are aligned and you pull the trigger, you're going to hit your target. It's all the human interaction um, user interface that becomes the problem. And so I'm a big proponent of Make the gun fit you. Don't you fit the gun. Because under stress, if you try to make yourself adapt to a gun, you're going to have problems. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm one of these people who, you know, it's like, well, just muscle that shotgun or, you know, do this or do that or whatever. You're limp wristing. Modify the gun. Modifying the gun is not a big deal. You can modify the gun so that it, it works well for you. Um. If you want to talk about trigger mods as it relates to legal implication, we can do that later. Um, that might be interesting because actually last week's guest, do you know Andrew Branca? I've heard the name. I don't know him. Yeah. Well, we were talking about that last week. So I might ask you for your yeah. thoughts as well. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> People lose their heads. Yeah. 
Um, but you know, really, I think I've come down to three basic fundamentals for the three main platforms of firearms that we use. The shotgun, you've got to remember that the rear eye is your rear sight. The shotgun's got to fit you. If it doesn't, your rear sight's in the wrong place, you're going to miss. Yep. That's shotgun. Rifle, you just got to make sure that your posture and your your position when you built it is correct. If you're muscling the gun, for precision at least, if you're muscling the gun, your recoil is not going to be the same every time, and therefore your accuracy suffers at long range. And we're, when I say long range, I'm talking 600 yards plus. Mm-hmm. Um, handgun, it's all about we can't grip pressure. Uh, <laughs> I say it over and over and over again. You know, Blake went and shot the Rocky Mountain 3 gun, and there were a couple stages where he had some issues. He had some misses on some target second round misses. And he come back. I don't know how I missed that. I'm like, cause you weren't gripping with your weak hand. We go back and watch video and you see the muzzles flipping more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Manny Bragg was the person who really kind of got me past a couple of my personal pistol humps. And it was that weak hand grip pressure. And so, um, Charlie Perez is another one who's really focused on weak hand grip pressure. And there's all these things out there, 70-30, 50-50. What's interesting is if you look at all the, all the top shooters, their weak hand grip pressure and their strong hand grip pressure is very close. I mean, within 10 pounds of each other. Mm-hmm. So if you say, I need 30 pounds with my strong hand and 70 pounds with my weak hand, yeah, most of your top shooters, they're like 65 with their strong hand and like 65 with their weak hand. And yeah. you've got to be there. You've got to be at 65, 70 pounds with your weak hand if you want to shoot fast. And that's managing the recoil so that as the sights are tracking and you start being able to call your shots, which is maybe a little bit of an advanced topic, um, if it's not consistent, you can't call your shots. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we can get pressure. That's that's my big thing with handgun. Yeah. And we see that so often here. I mean, you're right. As far as... Take a shooter, for instance, and they come out of the holster and their first shot might be good, but then that second shot and that third shot, who knows where it, where it's going, right? Yeah. Because what's happening is that, that the gun and everything is just moving in the hand right. too much and it's not coming back to where they started. Sure. That's that's my goal is is try to come back where I started, right? right. I mean, go go to the range, you know, and, and in range is easy and watch a bunch of people shooting, you know, handguns and that guy that shoots one, two or three rounds and then opens their hand up and repositions mm-hmm. it. It's because they don't have enough weak hand grip pressure. And yep. They need more. Yeah. Now, when you say 65 or 70 pounds, uh, can we put that into some sort of context for, for listeners? I mean, this is, as an instructor, I struggle with this all the time with students of mine that I'm like, you need to grip tightly is basically Correct. what I'm trying to tell them. And they don't usually quite understand how tightly I mean. And a lot of times I'll, what I'll do to demonstrate is I'll go up to their hand as they're holding their pistol and I'll, I'll grip around their hand tight. Right. Like this tight. Right. Like when I'm grabbing my, my gun, this is how tightly I'm grabbing my gun. Mm-hmm. So can you put that kind of in some sure. context? I mean, the, an average female is going to have somewhere around 70, 80 pounds of grip pressure maximum in their strong hand. Average male is going to be somewhere between 100 and 110 pounds. 
when Charlie Perez went and started doing grip pressure tests on the top shooters, he found that their weak hand was in excess of 100 pounds and their strong hand was typically in excess of 130 pounds. That's what gives them that that ability to have 50% of their grip strength in their strong hand and 50% of their grip strength in their weak hand and still have a pretty good clamp. So, yeah. you know, once you go past 22s, anything center fire, you need to have that that strength. And there are things that you can do to enhance your forearm strength and your, your hand strength as well. Um, you know, we do a couple different exercises. Uh, sometimes I slack off on it and I'll go out and shoot. I'm like, oh man, my weekend, I need to work on it. Yeah. I'll come back and work on my weekend grip pressure. And, sh- and shooting is work. It is. Frankly. Like if you're going to do it right and if you're going to grip as strongly as you need to, sure, you're going to get tired. You know, if you go and shoot a USPSA pistol stage and you haven't been working on your grip pressure, you know, say you have average grip pressure, you get to the end of a 20, 30 second stage, your weak hand should be slightly fatigued. If it's not, you're probably not gripping tight enough. How we balance that though, is that if you grip too tight with your strong hand, now you're reducing your trigger speed and you're putting asymmetrical force into the gun when you're pulling the trigger. So it's, it's a balance. It's a problem. And it's, you know, I think that grip pressure, um, more than any other thing is the separator between being able to shoot accurately and then be able to shoot fast and accurately. Right. Which has perfect application to what we talk about on this podcast all the time. Sure. I mean, you're in a shooting to save your life. What's your goal? Stop the threat. Stop that threat as quickly as you can. And to do that, shoot as quickly and as accurately as you can. Yeah. <laughs> like you just said. Exactly. So, yeah. All right. Good stuff. Is there any anything else that you would say as, as particularly as someone that's coming, you know, into the shooting sports, you know, as a new newer shooter, and they're just trying to, you know, maybe decide on where they focus some of their attention and time. Uh, grip, we, we just hashed out. Just curious if there's anything else. You, you know, I, I think it depends on the sport. Um, you know, I tell people, hey, you want to sh- go shoot three gun and you've never shot anything else, or you want to go shoot precision rifle and you've never shot anything else, you're jumping into the deep end of the shark pool. Go shoot some steel challenge. Go shoot some IDPA. Go shoot some USPSA pistol. Um, yeah, I think I even told you that when you were saying, hey, go on, do three gun. I'm like, I didn't know you very well. I'm like, hey, go shoot some pistol matches first. Because there, there's a lot going on. Um, and I tell people, don't go buy anything either. Um, right. You know, if you get on some of these forums, especially three-gun forums and PRS, three-gun and PRS, which is Precision Rifle Series, phenomenally expensive. I do both. It's not It's not always a good <laughs> idea to do both. Um, phenomenally expensive. It's even more expensive if you make mistakes. And so buying yep. junk gear because somebody's sponsored and you like them, it may not be the right gear. Um, you know, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but I know most of the top sponsored shooters who are, have the big contracts, they shoot what they get sponsored for. Um, some of them go and take certain guns and test large groups of them and pick the ones that are the best. And they've got repair parts and they know their guns really, really well. Yeah. That doesn't mean that that's a good gun for the average person to go out and spend your money on. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I tell people, it's like, if you want to get into competitive shooting, the best thing to do is pick your sport, 
find the local match, the match director, send them an email, give them a call, however you can get in touch with them. Go out and watch one time. Set some targets, um, help score if you can, learn it, understand it, ask people who are there, hey, what are the mistakes you made? You know, what are the mistakes that you would warn me about? Because there's local flavors, you know, I mean, you know, we live in Colorado and we've got Henning Walgren. So there's a lot of guys that shoot the Tanfolios. Um, so we had a lot of guys shooting Tanfolios and, you know, you go to a match in, in Limited, there'd be like 12 guys shooting Tanfolios. You go to Florida and you never see one. Yeah. So there's regional differences. Um, but that's the biggest thing is talk to your match director, beg and borrow some gear. Um, if you provide factory ammo, most, I don't know, but maybe two or three people who wouldn't say, yeah, here, shoot my stuff. Yep. Right. We see that so often. I mean, you go to a three-gun match, and uh, there's always newer shooters that show up. Mm-hmm. And you always see the ones, too, that they have the wrong stuff, or they, or they don't have certain stuff that they really ought to have. And folks are just pulling stuff out of their bags. You know, yep. hey, you here's go. this old gear that... You know, I, I keep it as a spare or whatever, you know, here, use this for today. Yeah. And, you know, you know I'll, I'll do a little plug for my company, Carbon Arms. I mean, every shooter that we sponsor has at least a 10-round or a 12-round pinwheel in their bag that I'm like, if you see somebody needs it, loan it to them. Mm-hmm. And they do. I mean, I get stories all the time. It's like, hey, I, I bought a backbone or I bought a chest rig because one of your shooters let me borrow your stuff and I really liked it. I'm like, yep. awesome. Yep. Well, I, I've got your chest rig. Well, and I've got a pinwheel as well, you know. Probably ought to get another, a second one or a third one. Uh, but I love my chest rig. You know, you get those shotgun-heavy stages, and you you got to have it. Yep. And there's always, inevitably, at a, at a match, there's a shooter that they don't have a chest rig. Yep. Or they don't have enough on their belt. Right. And it's like, here, you know, use it. And they get done, they're like, oh, that's awesome. And I certainly hope, and I do encourage that they would, you know, contact you and and uh, hopefully get, get one of their own. Yeah. So uh, they uh, they work they work good. Yeah, absolutely. Got a little excitement going on Sorry, somewhere in the house. Dog barking. <laughs> it's all good. So, um, Mark, you know your guy. I mean, obviously very competitively focused, but you're familiar with the with the defensive and the tactical environment as well. Uh, so one thing I kind of like to ask and explore uh, in my own life. It's something I've been trying to uh, reconcile, <laughs> and and that is, you know, do you find that a shooter uh, that gets into co- competition shooting, uh, that that, I mean, would that benefit them in a defensive uh, shooting environment as well? Would it hurt them? Is it neither? Is there a little bit of both? I'm, I'm just curious what your take is on You know, that. and I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I mean, obviously a guy like Ron Avery, I don't know if you know Ron, mm-hmm. but, he, you know, he's written some articles on this and I've read them and I distill them and, you know, I come completely from a civilian perspective and he comes from a, you know, law enforcement perspective and, you know, other guys have come from a military perspective. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I I have some guys that are SWAT team members that I work on purely with shooting. Yep. Not their tactics, just shooting. Um, I've had some military guys have come and shot some of my three gun matches and I try to debrief them as much as I can afterwards. Is this good for you? Was it bad for you? Um, you know, there's a guy here in Colorado, awesome special forces guy, um, you know, does all that stuff that, you know, TV movies are made about. And he came and shot the Noveski match, finished about middle of the pack. And he goes, this is freaking hard. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there going, well, it's a game. 
because there's a timer and a score sheet. It's a game. But that transfer of skills, and when we start talking about cognitive stack, this will make even more sense. If your safety and your gun handling skills and your accuracy skills become part of you because you've done them so much, that gives you more in the tactical environment to think about solving my problems yeah. and figuring out what's going on and thinking about it rationally. If I'm freaked about, about, oh, I can't get the safety off, um, or, you know, I know that that target that I want to shoot is, you know, 12 yards away and I can only shoot a six inch group and he's moving and I've never shot anything on move. You're toast. I mean, your self doubt is going to prevent you from making the better shot. Yeah. I'm not saying the best shot or, or the stopping shot because you still may do those, but it's preventing you from making what could be your best shot. Yeah. So, yeah. I, but at the same time, if you get lulled into that thing of every target takes two rounds and then you never assess that target and you're always moving on to the next target and everything's only about speed, yeah. Speed is a tactic. But if it's only speed, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. Especially with target ID. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, we've talked about it on this podcast before and with some of our competitive shooters have been on, uh, as far as like one thing I th- and I tell a lot of my students now that, that come through, whether it be a basic CCW course or if it's a little more advanced defensive handgun course, I say, Hey, you know, and it's not like I'm gonna force everybody to try to get into competition shooting, but it's have you thought about doing that? yeah, you know, and a lot of times they don't know where to get started. Right. And I'll say, hey, if you have any interest at all, you should you should do it. Because what I've found in myself is that I'm a very defensively minded shooter, but in the competition, competition realm, it's really forced me to push myself to just get better and faster at the shooting aspect of it and make all that happen automatically. Correct. Okay, there is the first half of my lengthy and in-depth interview with Mark Passamanic, uh of Carbon Arms. And uh, as you found out, I mean, he also does a lot of forensic engineering slash investigation. Uh, he, he really understands physics and mechanics and a super smart dude and a heck of a shooter as well and makes really great quality gear. Now, the second part of this interview, which will be played back in the next episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast, you're not, I mean, really, this is where we really get into it. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we're already pretty well educated after this first part, but uh, the second part, we really dive into the idea of cognitive stack and how our brains work and how much we can process at one time, which, you know what, if we're if you are ever in a deadly force encounter, you you need to be prepared for that. And one of the best ways you can be prepared is by understanding how cognit- your cognitive stack works, what you're capable of processing, especially while under stress, and then working on those things that you need to have happen automatically, essentially, so you can be freed up to think and process and, and get through that that thing. But we're going to dive into that. I don't want to give all the way, uh, all the all the goods. So, But uh, today's episode, by the way, is brought to you not only by Andrew's or Andrew Branca's Law of Self-Defense, but also by the Brave Response Holster. Long-time listener of this podcast, 
Uh, and anyone that's ever been to our website, you know we sell the Brave Response holster. We are the exclusive online retailer of it. And it is, you know, it's on our website for a reason because it's a product that we really believe in. Uh, we've sold thousands and thousands and thousands of these over the last couple of years. The cool thing is, is out of thousands and thousands of them, it's only a very small percentage to ever come back to us. And only a small percentage of people that are that are dissatisfied with them, you know. And, and, and you guys know if if you've been buying or using holsters for any length of time, you know that holsters, you know, they just, some of them don't work for some people and some others don't work for other people. There's never a one size fits all solution, but this is about as good as it gets because it seems to work for so many people. The Brave Response holster fits waist sizes basically from 20 to 60 inches, very adjustable, very versatile, you can fit almost any semi-automatic handgun in it. You can carry spare mags in it if you want. You could throw even, you know, you can stash uh, a flashlight or a pocket knife or whatever in the additional pockets that come as part of, you know, all part of the Brave Response holster. Check it out at concealedcarry.com forward slash Brave Response. And today's other sponsor is Quick Draw. Quick Draw is a product, a, a lubricant that is not so much for your gun as it is for your holster. And one of the beautiful things about Quick Draw, especially by the way, if you, you if you're still using a leather holster, nothing wrong with that by the way. Love leather holsters. Uh, not a lot of the holsters I use anymore on a daily basis are leather holsters, but I still have quite a few of them, and occasionally still throw a gun in them. And Quick Draw has natural lanolin in it, as, as well as silicone. And all that together makes a perfect, not only lubricating product for your holster and for your gun, but also it conditions your holster. But it also works great on plastic and polymer and Kydex holsters as well. One of the things is, is that it keeps it clean and keeps it smooth. So if you're looking to Keep that draw stroke smooth, not get hung up on anything. You know, get out of the holster just a little bit quicker, which, you know, seconds count in Daily Force Encounters. Check out Quick Draw. You can find it on our website in the online store. Go in, go into our store at concealedcarry.com. Search by brand and look for Quick Draw. You'll, you'll see it there along with all of our many other uh, hundreds of products. Hope that you'll check it out. Quick Draw, we thank them for sponsoring this episode today. And so there you have it. Folks, now I hope you'll go right into and listen to the second half of the interview together with Mark Passamanic. Uh, I published uh, that episode right together with this first one. So you, you can go right to it, jump in, get the conclusion. I know you're going to love it. And so with that, I hope that as a reminder, you will train right, train often, train safe. So you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody. See you next time. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.